Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The pre-med year, session number 552. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have a great couple of guests today, a duo from cap year. Before we jump into that, though, I want to talk about the MCAT minutes brought to you by Blueprint MCAT. Did you know? Did you know? MCAT registration is open for 2024, at least the first half of 2024, typically opens in October every year. And that means you should go register. If you're planning on applying in 2024, you should be taking the MCAT early 2024 to get that score in. Go to blueprintmcat.com sign up for a free account, use their free study planner tool, and take a look at what a March MCAT date may look like for you with your study schedule. Can you fit it in? Do you need to push back to April, maybe May? Uh, Lots of students ask, when's the latest I can take it? I'm comfortable with end of June, but you need to get your application in as well. So there's lots of things to juggle. Go to blueprintmcat.com today, sign up for that free account, use their study planner tool, to see what that study schedule may look like. Again, that's blueprintmcat.com. All right, today we're jumping in and saying hello to Dr. Deborah Gutman and RT Arnold from capyear.co. Dr. Deb Gutman and RT Arnold, welcome to the Pre-Med Years. Thank you for joining me. Great to be here. Great to be here. Very excited to be here. Uh, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to be selfish and start with uh, you, Deb. You are a physician, and this is the pre-med years, and so the audience is going to love to hear your story. RT, I will get to your story here (laughs) because I I love to talk to people who are crazy (laughs) enough to jump into this world of pre-meds and pre-health students. Um, But Deb, when did you first realize you wanted to be a doctor? Oh, why'd you throw me such a hardball <laughs> to start? Um, I, you know, I have to give the classic pre-med answer, which is I kind of always knew. Uh, so my father is a physician, so mm-hmm. kind of had that around me all the time. Um, but it was really working EMS, actually, during college mm-hmm. that pretty much sealed the deal. So I did, I went to Brown University. We have a college ambulance service. We've had one for a long time without revealing my age. Um, and so I worked as an EMT and it really just was, and became an emergency physician. So you you can see the impact it had. I mean, that kind of rapid decision making, right? Direct care of patients really spoke to me and it was pretty much sealed at that point. Yeah. Sealed that deal. Uh, sealed and RT, deal. RT, for you, uh, 
you uh, run this company or are or, or the founder CEO of, of Cap Year. Mm-hmm. This is a, a program, a company out there supporting pre-health students, pre-med, pre-PA students, finding gap year opportunities to kind of bolster their applications, get clinical experiences. Did, did you like fall and hit your head one day and you're like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go help crazy pre-meds and pre-PA students. Well, you know, it's funny, like most good ideas in our house, my wife is actually a vascular surgeon. Aha. And talking to her, I was talking to her about a challenge that, you know, she, like many, uh, you know, medical offices have and practices have mm-hmm. of, you know, finding and retaining great medical assistants. Yep. And then she was talking to me about how if we could come up with a way to solve a medical assistant problem, we would definitely have a business. Yep. And I started to dig into that a little bit and I was stunned. I was speaking particularly to, to, people who were PAs uh, that had gone through the process where, you know, clinical experience is so critical to the application process. And all of them were talking about how hard it was to find jobs. Yeah. And I started to dig into this a little bit more and realized that there was this huge disconnect, right? You have an enormous cohort of highly capable, highly motivated, you know, really intelligent, uh, pre-med and pre-PA students who are really, who are looking for clinical experience and all of these open entry level positions. And yet for some reason, they're not connecting with each other. Mm-hmm. And there are reasons for that and we can get into it. But foundationally to me, that felt like a business with a mission that I could really get behind. Yeah, you know, they, I do not have a clinical background. Mm-hmm. But I can in a secondary way, you know, help people, not only help people get jobs, but like we're really creating you know, physicians and medical leaders and PAs for the future. Yeah. That felt like something I'd really be excited about, you know, you know, putting, putting, putting my efforts into. So that's how it got started. Yeah. Deb, I want to, I want to ask you, right. RT mentioned that there is this need for clinics and hospitals and, and uh, healthcare providers to have medical assistance. Most, most offices will have medical assistance. There is this huge population of pre-health students, pre-med, pre-PA students who need experience. Where do you think the disconnect is is coming from in terms of students finding these opportunities or or the clinics giving these opportunities to to pre-med, pre-PA students? So we've been at this for a little while now and talked to lots of employers and there are there are actually historically some some established practices that have been pretty good at this already have kind of figured out that secret that pre-health students make really good um, medical assistants or entry-level clinical employees. Um, But it really hasn't been sort of nationalized or done at scale in any way. And when we start talking to the larger employers, like some of the barrier, honestly, is sort of the way HR works. Um, So some of it is just not being able to see that transferable experience that a pre-health student might have that would actually make them ready for that role. Many of them haven't held a true clinical job yet. And so that's not going to show up on their resume or CV. There is a little bit of a barrier with certification and sort of just hospital-wide system saying they require certification. And it's really hard to change a job description just for a single employee when you're talking about like a large hiring system. Whereas with smaller practices, is a little bit more flexible in that regard. So, I mean, a lot of what RT and I do is spend time with employers, one, educating them about the strengths of 
pre-health and pre-PI students and pre-med students for these roles and how they are actually prepared for these roles despite not being certified or maybe having had a clear medical assistant job in the past. And so we spent a lot of time working with employers to restructure or rethink kind of their process so that they can find these students, right, and connect with them. So, I mean, I think that's sort of, you know, it has been sort of a technical HR barrier to some extent. And then the other thing we really learned is people who want to hire pre-health students who really don't have prior clinical experience, right? There is a training period um, and that's kind of a six, you know, depending on the student, so he's you know, going to be anywhere between six weeks and three months to get someone up to speed. And so, you know, if a practice doesn't have someone who's willing to advocate and train that student, you know, it, it's not appealing, right? Like they don't want to have someone show up that kind of needs to be fully trained from day one. So we've sort of worked through that barrier. And I think the last one, honestly, is this just lack of knowledge of what a gap year looks like and how long they might have that student for and really starting to understand that planned turnover. Yeah. So, you know, in the healthcare market, most medical assistants are gone within six to eight months, actually, even the non-pre-health ones. Yeah. And so, you know, sort of trying to show them that like, yeah, it's only a year maybe, but it's often two, depending on when they're applying. Yeah. Um, but that's sort of the turnover anyway, right? So um, it's it's so, so funny. They have this fear of turnover, but somehow they put blinders on to go, oh, this isn't a pre-health student, so they're not going to leave. But they do leave, but there's this like disconnect that they just, they don't believe that they're going to leave. And so they're going to trust the, the person anyway. Yeah, it's yeah, interesting. So we spent, it's a, we spent, and I'm sure you know this, Ryan. I mean, we spent a lot of time like advocating for the strengths of pre-health students. I mean, yeah. they're they're smart, they're fast to train, they're motivated, right? They honestly kind of want a letter of recommendation. <laughs> they want a close relationship with that clinician, right? So like, they're not going to be flaky, one would hope, I mean, for the most part, right? Yeah. So they are really great employees once they start using them. So, you know, we spend a lot of time kind of trying to speak the merits of hiring a pre-health student. Yeah. So the gap year, the gap year is becoming more and more a conversation. I think the most recent data from the AAMC, uh, we we have like the largest amount of students ever from the AAMC that are taking more than a year off between uh, undergrad and med school. And we get, we feel tons of questions about, should I do a gap year? Should I not take a gap mm-hmm. year? And I think, uh, there's, there's lots of judgment placed on the word gap year without truly understanding what it is, uh, for, for RT or, or Deb, whoever wants to answer in your world, when a student is thinking about their, their journeys, uh, looking at applying to PA school or med school, and thinking about, should I take a gap year? Should I not? Should I fill it with uh, a clinical position that I found through cap year? What what sort of advice do you give on rationales for that gap year? I could probably take that one. So sort of, you know, with my pre-health advisor hat on, um, you know, I, I think a gap year is not required. I think that's a common question, right? Is it sort of like this unspoken mandatory thing now? And I don't think that is the case. I think you can still go straight through to med school. I think a few things happened. Um, Students wanted to slow things down. Uh, So, you know, there's more and more kind of requirements placed on pre-health students in terms of what they need to do before they apply, especially pre-PA, where the average number of clinical hours is up above 2,000 now. And so, you know, trying to smush in all of that in four years has become increasingly difficult and wanting Mm -hmm. to kind of take the time and give attention to each piece, the MCAT, the prereqs, your clinical experience is sort of what tipped the scales into lots of people taking gap years. I have to admit, I took a gap year before it was even called a gap year. Um, And honestly, like, you know, did I get- It's just called playing hooky back in the day. 
It was. <laughs> and did I and did I get my parents saying to me, "Oh my God, if you don't go straight through, you're never gonna go." Absolutely. Yep. Yes, that was the messaging I got. And honestly, <laughs> I only did it because I wanted to slow things down. Like yeah. it wasn't even, you know, I had all the pieces in place, but I was like, I've been in school for what is it like 15 years by then? Like, you know, I just want to not be in school for a year. Right. So there is a lot of that, but then there is also the sort of the COVID effect as I'm sure, you know, Ryan, where like people couldn't get experiences. So I think that just totally tipped the scales, right. They're just, it just got harder and harder to get in a clinical setting unless you were an employee. Right. So that's sort of where these paid clinical jobs started taking like front and center, you know, where now you probably get this question all the time. Like, do I need to be a scribe? Do I need to be a medical assistant? You know, and I think the answer is you don't need to. It is a great (laughs) opportunity, right? But there are other ways to get clinical experience, even volunteering, right? So, um, and then of course, there's the cohort who need to improve their grades or who haven't finished their prerequisites. And that's a whole different piece. And then there's students who just want to like pursue something else, pharma, consulting, yeah. Right. Just haven't haven't quite made up their mind. And I think those are all fair game. And as you know, medicine has changed substantially over like the last 10 years in terms of the team, in terms of, you know, whether you're an independent employer, you're working for a hospital or, you know, kind of lots of pieces of the puzzle have changed. And I think it's really important to explore that and be 100 percent sure before you commit yourself to like two to three hundred thousand dollars of debt, um, you know. Yeah. And kind of go forward with med school or PA school. Yeah. So RT, as as we were talking uh, again, there there are a lot of pre-health students out there that are looking for these jobs. You have the the clinics, the the physicians, providers looking for help. How can a student who is potentially looking for these positions, whether they go through cap year or they're on just some job board somewhere or they hear through the grapevines that an office is hiring somebody, how can they uh, make sure that their resume, their application, their whatever it is, their professionalism is, is up to par to get an interview and hopefully land one of those jobs? Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about some of the concerns already that employers have, and it's sort of keeping those in mind as you then think about structuring your, you know, your job application. So they, when they're thinking about pre-health students, oftentimes they're imagining, you know, six to 12 months, they're imagining, you know, no experience, they're not going to be around. And, uh, you know, Deb mentioned, you know, how much training and how much time do I want to put into someone that doesn't have a lot of experience? if I think they're only going to be around for six months. So I think there are a few things, you know, outside of just kind of the core experience on the resume that can really help. So one, I see a lot of resumes where people that do either have a certificate that they've earned or they've gotten clinical experience one way or another, they're not really highlighting it in their resumes. They're kind of making their resumes all chronological. Yeah. And it's, you know, three quarters of the way down the page, they mention that they're a certified medical assistant, they've got a <laughs> CNA or something like that, which is really, you're, it's like burying the lead, right? Yeah. So that I would definitely recommend, whether it's in, you know, cover notes can be very effective if uh, as a tool to sort of highlight and say any training that you have, that's going to set you apart. I think timing is a big deal, right? Because the training risk is really only in association with how long people think they're going to be around. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you are maybe on a 12 year, you know, most employers for full-time jobs really want to like a year seems to be kind of a natural cutoff for most employers. Yeah. 
but there are a lot of people who are applying pre-health students who are applying for jobs to just know because of their application cycle that they are 18 to 24 months away from actually attending school. Yeah. That's a really important fact to convey mm-hmm. because if the employer does have this perception that, all right, this is not nine to 12 months, this is 18 to 24 months. They're just going to see your application differently. They're going to think differently about investing in your training. So those are a couple of small things to definitely make sure that whether it's in a cover note or you're highlighting it in a blurb on your resume um, to do in addition to just your own experience. Yeah. I hear from a lot of students who say, I found a job, but they require two-year commitment. And because of school, I only have 12 or I only have 18. Neither of you are lawyers that I know of. Uh, What's the legality of a student going, I'm going to take that job anyway and just quit when I quit? I mean, most con- most employment contracts are at will, yeah. right? I mean, there are now there are some programs like structured programs, maybe sort of like you know AmeriCorps based, or or where you're you're not just getting a job, you're actually signing up to a program. Now that may be a little different, mm-hmm. but typically, if it's just a job, I mean, you can almost all employment is at will. Yeah, so you can leave, and honestly, they can fire you. They can fire you for any job. reason. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're not committed to you for two years either. Um, I think what they're really looking for is kind of that level of commitment. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of people may say two years. I have to say our experience really has been 12 months is kind of the minimum, right? That's really, uh, and employers want to hear longer, but, you know, I think a year is pretty is pretty standard. Yeah. And Ryan, I bet you're saying because I hear this question too. If they ask for two, can I? I sh- I don't want to use the word lie, but um, maybe stretch the truth and say maybe I'll be around for two years. And you know, my two cents is if you do that, like you just have to think of your kind of fellow pre health students, right? Yeah. Like you don't want to go burning bridges for the people behind you, right? And yeah. yeah, you know, if you start saying yes, I can do two years and quitting after one, like you know that job's going to stop um, hiring pre-health students, right? So um, just think of your peers and the people behind you and, you know, try to at least be honest in your intentions, whether you leave in a year or not is a different story, but, you know, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say to you if you know it's impossible. Yeah. So when a student is looking at their timeline and they're going, okay, I, I'm not going to be that traditional student. I'm, I'm not going to apply at uh, the end of my junior year to start med school a month or two or three after I graduate from undergrad. And they're looking at their application. They're looking at their, their resume going, oh yeah, I'm a little bit weak here in clinical experiences. What will they expect if I, if I go to capier.co and, and search and see what you all have to offer, what will I find as a student? So, so currently, well, think, what you're going to find is, um, well, one, you'll find a lot of educational content. So yep. we're certainly trying to put out pre-health content for free on um, gap year planning, thinking about clinical jobs, how to prepare for a clinical job. But then primarily, you're going to find our job board, which is going to have what we deem to be appropriate clinical entry-level work for pre-health or pre-PA students. Um, So a lot of it's gonna be medical assistant, um, but certainly we've had other positions up there. We had a psychometrist position up there, which is someone who helps do sort of the cognitive testing for kids with ADHD or kind of a 
cognitively impaired adults. So, you know, there's lots of entry level and we could probably spend some time on this entry level clinical positions that students may not have heard of that they might actually find entertaining. We lean towards Mm -hmm. medical assistant because as we know, for candidacy reasons, like you're trying to figure out who you are and whether you want to be a doctor or a PA, right? So Mm -hmm. you kind of want to be around doctors and PAs and you kind of want to be around patients. So medical assistant does tend to be the role that gets you both. um, Whereas something like scribing does get you around patients, but you're not really a direct member of the care team. You're really working for the clinician. So, I mean, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but scribe jobs will be up there too. But any job we think gets you either or, right, near a clinician or near a patient is going to be up there. Yeah. I I would love to dive into some of those lesser known clinical jobs because that's that's a super common question that students will throw our way saying, I I need clinical experience. I don't know where to look. And they, they just, they don't know where to start. So, I mean, I think the ones we hear about the most are just like I did, EMT, right? So EMT comes up a lot because a lot of colleges have um, EMT or ambulance services, which is great. I mean, obviously, I had a really enjoyable and great experience getting clinical experience while I was a student, right? Um, So, and then the bar for training is intense, but not as expensive or long as maybe a medical assistant certification. So that tends to come up quite a bit. The difference between CNA and medical assistant is one I get a lot of questions on, and I bet you do too, Ryan. Um, And I would say those are structured differently because CNA is certified nursing assistant and a medical assistant is a medical assistant. So it's who's supervising them that's technically different about those roles. So a certified nursing assistant really works underneath a nurse and a medical assistant works underneath a, a clinician, like a, a physician or a PA. Um, and so the model is just slightly different in terms of what you're going to be doing and who tends to employ those different titles. So nursing assistants usually end up in sort of like nursing homes or hospital settings where it's like direct nursing care of a patient. Medical assistants tend to end up in ambulatory settings where you're helping physicians in their practice on an outpatient basis. I mean, that's not a hard and fast rule, but that is kind of the origin of those two different positions. However, what I would put out there is if you got trained as a CNA, don't keep that and you're certified as a CNA, kind of like what RT was saying, don't let that keep you from applying for a medical assistant job, right? Because some of the skills overlap and you still have clinical training, right? So Mm -hmm. an employer will see that as a transferable training likely, right? So, you know, don't under or an EMT, right? If you've been trained as an EMT, you can still apply for a medical assistant job. Yeah. Um. So, and then uh, the only thing I'd other say, like we have, we were just speaking to the University of Maryland Health System. They have jobs doing community health workers. That's sort of an up and coming position. That's sort of been interesting as an entry level position where you are really helping students, uh, students. This is a, I'm having role issues. You are helping patients um, access resources in the community to help them meet their healthcare goals. So, um, you know, hooking them up with nutrition services or helping them work through their appointments or making sure they have their follow-up appointments. And those are kind of great positions for like learning about the social determinants of health and all that kind of other stuff that goes on outside the healthcare system. So um, that's kind of another one that I think is becoming more popular and is very entry level and doesn't require any certification. Yeah. What is something that just makes it very easy for a student to not get a job? RT. <laughs> <laughs> a great, that is a great question. I think I think fundamentally, you know, most pre-health students, if 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 we take that in general, right, don't don't have a lot of experience, and uh, it is it is whether it's valid or just a historical habit. A lot of employers are looking when they get a resume, they're like, okay, well, what is the 
what is their experience? That's like one of the first questions. And do they have the experience or the skills that are relevant for this position? And so many pre-health students don't have a lot of experience because they've been, you know, they've been in college and taking classes and just that's, everyone understands that. I think what you're, what they're really presenting is a word that actually Ryan, you used earlier, which is professionalism. Mm -hmm. What we do hear a lot of employers talk about is I hire medical assistants who have the skills, but they don't necessarily have the professionalism, the way they treat treat patients, the way they talk Mm -hmm. to patients, turnover, showing up late, just not being engaged. They're treating it as a job. Yeah. And I think if you are a pre-health student without experience, you have to convey how excited you are about the opportunity and how professional you're going to be because you're really kind of trading on the professionalism element of graduating from college and aspiring to bigger things in medicine. Mm-hmm. And I do see uh, I do see people make the mistake that they don't kind of lead by conveying that professionalism. Yeah. So and when, take, when does and that it, start, RT? So I think, I mean, a lot of interviews now, a lot of initial interviews right now are taking place on Zoom. Yeah. And so people will take, uh, candidates will take those Zoom interviews much more casually than they will if they were going in person. So they'll take them from a car, they'll take them from a phone, <laughs> you know, they'll, they won't be dressed appropriately. And all of a sudden now you've got two strikes because, or maybe three, because you don't really have a lot of experience and you're not conveying professionalism. So <laughs> this, this isn't a Dr. Only, Seuss book, right? I'll take the call in a box. I'll take the call with a fox. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, it is, it is, you know, have a good background, be set up, dress like dress for an interview yeah. and, you know, do a little research beforehand about what the position is. The more the interviewer or the hiring manager believes that you see, that the, that the candidate sees it as a great opportunity and not just a job, that's an important distinction and it's a totally different level of energy and mindset. Yeah. That's going to be key. When you're treating it like a job, you it's you're going to get you're not going to get very far. Yeah. Deb, I would love to follow up uh, on that, right? You're a physician, I'm a physician. No disrespect to you, RT, but there there <laughs> you're not the physician, so I I, I want to go to Deb yeah. here. Right? I I think yeah. there are a lot of physicians who will say that being a physician is more than a job. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing mm-hmm. more and more younger generations going, that's a bunch of BS. That's indoctrinating you into this culture of you're going to work your butt off for a little pay during residency. And there's a big pushback on this kind of identity of being a physician as a calling, as more than a job. And RT is saying here, like, you got to treat being a medical assistant as more than a job. What do you think about when when you hear that? I mean, I still think medicine is a calling, right? I think you ask, if you ask any physician, like, why did you choose medicine? Like, we all did feel some sort of ambiguous thing we can't put our finger on besides, you know, the cliche, we like science and we like helping people, right? So, you know, I do think it, it, it does call for more than just showing up for your shift and then going home, right? I mean, you are managing people's, you know, not to be dramatic, but life and death, right? So you have to have more in it than like, I just need my paycheck. Um, So I think that's never going away. You know, I I think what people are struggling with is how healthcare is structured now, right? Where the majority of physicians are employees, right? Which is a very different model than, for example, when my father, who's a physician, he worked for himself, right? With a private practice. So um, there's less and less of that going on. So, um, you know, I think that's where a lot of 
you know, that noise is coming from. Um, and so how to manage it being a profession where you have some independence and it's a calling and you're going to make some sacrifices with an employer is kind of where the trick is. So, yeah. you know, I, I respect the future generation for thinking about it. And I think that's part of why you should get a job in the healthcare workforce. You should see what it what's going on. Right. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and there's talk of physicians unionizing, which has been there's been mumblings of that for a very, very long time. Um, but, you know, you know, good for them for thinking about how to empower themselves to set boundaries but no matter how you approach it if you're caring for patients you have to be in it for more than the paycheck yeah. i mean there, there's just no ifs ands or buts about that i mean yeah. you know to get the depth of knowledge that we need to really have that social responsibility the responsibility just to the person in front of you i mean mm -hmm. who's anxious and worried and sick like you know you can't just you know punch a clock uh that will never be the case but setting boundaries around being an employee I, I respect the future generation for thinking about that because yeah. we probably didn't. We probably didn't enough. Yeah. <laughs> so, so RT uh, to follow up again on that, right? What what are the ramifications for a medical assistant for a pre health student to uh, for not being professional? What what are what are the ramifications of that in terms of the physician, provider, the PA, uh, and the the clinic itself? Well, I mean you as a medical assistant, right, are on the front line of engaging with patients when they come in and you are part of, as part of the care team, you know, you're not only delivering care, but you're delivering a total experience, right? And, and making sure that the patient isn't just getting better, but feels like they're being taken care of. And when you can deliver that and the patient really feels that you are part of a care team, uh, that's going to go a long way in terms of, you know, the patient engaging in their own care. I think when uh, people show up and they're already, you know, if they're coming to a doctor's office, generally there's something wrong already. And if they don't feel like they're being treated with respect and they don't feel like they're being cared for, you know, that's, that, that really creates a negative experience. And for the physicians and the PAs who, and the whole team, the nurses, everybody who's there that's really committed to taking care of patients, they want people that share that same desire to care for them. And if you're not doing it, then that's a big part of, you know, why they fired you. Yeah. So Ryan, I would yeah. say, you know, sorry, for, so for pre-health students, probably the biggest question you get too is like, do I have to get certified in something, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think we've talked a little bit about like how to prepare yourself and what employers are looking for. Mm -hmm. What I put out there is things people can consider beyond certification is how are you going to build those professionalism skills, right? So I would say the students who do a really good job of that are taking on roles as like an RA, right? any kind of mentorship role, any kind of counseling service roles that you do, even being a rep for your college, right? Like doing the tours, mm -hmm. right? So any role where you're like outward facing and respond, even as if it's volunteer and like have to be sort of the face of a company, like, so like something like just giving your college tours or being an intern, not intern, that's, that's medical school, being a, a residency, being a, a freshman orientation leader. Mm -hmm. Those have been, I think, really phenomenal, transferable jobs where you can really see someone's worked on their communication skills. And that goes a long way in the clinical setting. Yeah. So let's let's talk about some nuts and bolts of cap year. When should a student start coming to cap year knowing they're going to take a gap year and start looking for those potential positions? 
So I would I would sort of answer that question in two ways. I think if you're thinking about taking a gap year, it, whether you're a sophomore or a junior, you know, it's never too early because there's a lot of information and programming there about how to set yourself up, right? So as you're, you know, earlier on, I do talk to a lot of people who are in their senior year and they're thinking about what they wish they had done in their sophomore or junior year. So particularly if you are thinking about a gap year, you know, and even if you haven't decided, I would certainly come because there are going to be resources, there are going to be webinars, there are going to be things to learn as you're making that decision. If you've got a new place where you are taking a gap year and you know you're going to be doing it, and it's really a, a lot of it is, and you're looking for a job, you know, starting in, I mean, I think, you know, in your senior year, especially, um, we're going to have a lot of programming that talk about these tips, right? Here's how employers are thinking, here are mistakes not to make. So like you're getting ready. A lot of employers kind of fall into two categories. There are employers out there that have been hiring pre-health students for a while, and they've kind of gotten onto a cycle. And they will start hiring as early as February or March of your senior year because they know that they've got a group of 15 who are going to be leaving in July. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of have that visibility. They'll hire in advance to get, you know, an advantage, I guess, to, you know, hire first or have feel like they have the most choice and they can afford to make those offers and then wait for you to start working in May or June. Most employers though are probably tighter, are tighter than that because they're really looking to fill more of an immediate need. So most employers for positions are looking anywhere from, you know, six to maybe eight or 12 weeks out. I think really once you start to get even beyond eight weeks for a lot of employers, they're, they, they don't even know what they're going to need, right? So there's a low, medical assistant hiring is often driven by high turnover mm-hmm. and that turnover is unexpected. And so for a lot of employers, the, all of a sudden, just one day, they've got two weeks notice, they need to fill a position. Yeah. And so saying, great, I'll be ready in four months for a lot of practices, that's not going to work. Um, but I think starting to really apply February, March for positions that you see on cap year is not unreasonable. We do counsel employers and students, if you can do some part-time and the employer's open to that, we have seen a lot of employers say, look, if you can come in for one or two full days a week based on your class schedule, so let's say in April and May, knowing that you're going to start full-time in June, let's do that. Mm-hmm. And that can be great for the employer because they can get kind of a lot of initial training and paperwork and onboarding out of the way. And it's great for the student because they can lock down a job earlier. Yeah. For the students, what additional benefits outside of making the job search a little bit easier is Capier providing them that should make them want to come to you first? Yeah. I mean, we have different, so there are a lot of employers, employers on Capier's board kind of fall into two categories. There are employers who are coming to Capier because they've heard about it. They're posting jobs and honestly, there's some, we have some interaction with them and some less. And then there are others that we have a really deep relationship with. So they're hiring through Capier systematically. And particularly for those jobs, oftentimes they're looking for, they know that when a student is coming from Capier, that already means something. It means they're pre-health students. It means that they, you know, it, they're not just anyone on Indeed. And so they'll be looking for those coming directly from Capier. And so I don't, I can't say that that's every employer, but there are a lot of employers who 
know that when they see a captured candidate, they know that that's different and it's really what they're looking for. Uh, and that can help in terms of, you know, resume attention and application attention. Got it. So you're doing potentially some initial screening of, of all of the, the applicants that are going to be going toward uh, these uh, hospitals and ambulatory settings that, that you have uh, contracts with. So again, as, as you mentioned, there's, right, yeah. knowing that there's a, it's a capier student may bump them up the, the rank a little bit more. Yeah, there's some employers that just, it's just passed straight through and we okay. don't really engage. But there are a number of employers where that's exactly right. They're actually, we are engaging, we are doing a little bit of screening, okay. but that means when that candidate hits their desk, it it goes in a different pile. And that can be really helpful. Yeah. And, and I would add that with those engaged employers at the beginning, we talked a little bit about what are the obstacles? Why can't pre-health students get these jobs? And so when there's a very big kind of HR machine behind certain institutions, pre-health students can't get through it. So the employers we do have a relationship are coming to Capier to kind of, you know, you're you're not going through that HR screen, you're coming through us. And that's sort of the expectation, right? They know they're getting pre-health students um, that maybe typically wouldn't get through their standard HR screen. Got it. Got it. Right. So like if you apply directly through their system, you probably won't get looked at. If you apply through Capier, we're sort of a little bit kind of getting around that a little shortcut <laughs> uh, it's a little bit of a shortcut yeah yeah and and is the student paying capier anything for that that little boost that shortcut nope no applying for jobs <laughs> on capier is free it's free awesome okay it is and uh and, and for applying applying for jobs on cap yeah. And, and probably a nuts and bolts thing that I don't know if students really care, like who's paying the student? Is it Capier? Is it the the physician, the office, whatever, the the setting itself? No, I think that's a reasonable question also because it, it speaks to like what benefits you're going to get and how mm -hmm. you're treated as an employee. So we are, you know, you're not hired by Capier. We are okay. not doing the hiring. We are literally presenting or kind of want to be a marketplace for students to come to for their gap year to find opportunities. We do not hire you. The employer will ultimately hire you and you'll have to go through their hiring process, which is probably a good thing because then you get all of the benefits and good things that come with some of these um, employers. Yeah. So, so Deb, I want to wrap up here uh, as the physician, as someone who interacts uh, as an advisor with lots of pre-med students for the student listening to this, who's who's struggling on their journey, trying to figure out all of this crazy stuff that they need to be doing, uh, getting gap year jobs and improving their MCAT score and improving their GPA, whatever it is they're doing. Uh, you have any words of encouragement for them to to keep going on this this crazy journey they're on? I mean, everybody's journey is different. Isn't that the truth, right? And I, I think there isn't any one right way. You probably spend your day saying this too, right? There is no right answer, right? right? They can ask you, do I need clinical experience? Should I be a scribe? Should I, it really should be about what's driving you and what's your passion, which I know sounds so Pollyanna-ish, but like people do lots of interesting things that aren't the prescribed pre-med thing to do and still go to med school and become physicians, right? So I do in my heart, think if you pursue what you're interested in and you really are interested in medicine, you will be doing the right things to improve your candidacy to become, you know, a physician or a PA. Um, so, you know, it's a very corny, like, just follow your interests and hopefully it will sort itself out, right? Not at, most people's route is not linear, right? It's going to look more like a squiggly line and that's, 
that's, I think, not said enough or normalized enough. I think a lot of people think it's always a straight line and it really, for the most part, isn't for most people. Yeah. Awesome. Well, RT, Deb, thank you so much for coming on. RT, for the students, where can they go to find out more? www.capier.co. <laughs> we have no That's M. It. And John no, said no Yeah. No M. All right. Well, th- thank you so much for, for coming on the pre-med years and, and sharing all of that wisdom with our audience. Thanks, Ryan. That was we fun. appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. There you have it again, Dr. Deborah Gutman and R.T. Arnold from capyear.co. Go check out capyear.co and see what kind of experiences, some clinical experiences you can have to improve your application. See if there's anything local to you that would work. And uh, based on your experiences, based on your certifications, based on your interests, go see what they have in your area. Go check them out again, capyear.co. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, blueprintmcat.com and sign up for that free account today. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.